This is an Equity Beats Media podcast. Equity Mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. I always enjoy these episodes, so very excited to get to the end of the month. Yes, month end, also financial year end. Actually, no, that's no, next no, no. month. I'm a, I'm a month Jeez. ahead of myself. Who would listen to us for investing advice? Well, it's because the first question is about tax. It had me thinking. So, um, as you said, Ren, end of month, which means it is our Ask Us Anything episode where we collate all the questions that we have received over the last month, both from our forum online, which is Ask Us Anything, uh, on our website. So, you can head there if you're keen to ask us a question. Uh, also, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email, um, we're everywhere, we're active, we're social, we're millennials, we've, we're in touch with all of that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> um, so send it through. So yeah, let's, uh, let's just get stuck into it, Ren. We've got a few questions to get through as always, um, some that touched on before, some others that are new. So let's, let's get stuck in. Yeah, all right. I'll ask you the first question. Okay. And it is about tax, as you noted. So um, one of our listeners is using Excel to currently calculate their tax, and they're wondering if we can recommend any software. So the short answer to this is no, I can't recommend any software. I don't use any software, and I'm, I'm sure there are some out there that you probably have to pay for. My interpretation of this question is around calculating capital gains, also dividends and capital losses, and then the implications that has on your tax return. Now, it, it can be complex and confusing depending on whether you want to claim your loss or gain in the current financial year. So look, short answer to this is is speak to a, a tax professional because depending on your circumstance, it, it can be tricky. I was hit up by the ATO just recently, Ren. I sold some stocks. My very first stock actually, Brickworks. Uh, I thought I sold it in the last financial year, but I sold it in the previous one and so missed claiming my dividend, uh, sorry, my capital gain on it. And they hit me up saying, hey, buddy, you've, uh, you've had a capital gains and we haven't seen you report it. So can you do so? I, I was able to do so. And also it allowed me to bring forward some of the capital losses that I'd recorded over the last few years that didn't have a gain against them. So it was able to uh, cancel out some of that capital gains tax that I had to pay. But um, there's a hell heap of information online, so I'd go and check it out. But short answer is no, I don't know of any software. Do you, Ren? Well, the big ones are like MYOB and Zero XERO, and I think like E-Tax as well. But I'm pretty all sure they're all, yeah, all, all yeah. focused on business and more like accounting yeah. software than personal yeah. tax software. Yeah. To, to be honest, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I just keep a record of my trades and then make sure you claim your losses because otherwise you can't offset them in future years when you make gains. But, yeah, I, I just record it as I go and then review it when tax time comes around. I'm sure there's a smarter and easier way to do it, but, 
you know, if there was, if we were smart, we probably wouldn't need to do this podcast. We'd just make heaps of money investing. <laughs> True, which we are. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rand. Next one. So, um, Mark has written into us, loving the podcast. You know, he's uh, in into his mid to late thirties, and he's starting to think about getting into the stock market. And he's got some cash sitting aside, wants to put it away. Uh, for you know the next thirty plus years, and he's tossing up uh, between the S and P five hundred and also the ASX two hundred, uh, you know ETFs or getting exposure to both of those indexes and markets. So, you know, he just wants an idea on what is the better performing stock, and uh, our thoughts on that. So, what's your response to that, Ren? So, first response is we can't give specific financial advice. So. Everything I'm about to say is general and doesn't account for your personal circumstances. In saying that, I think the the pretty obvious first statement is no one knows how markets will perform in future and historical performance of different markets is only an indicator. Um, it isn't, you know, it isn't definitive. So I think from that statement that the best thing to do is to diversify the markets that you're exposed to. So the question asked specifically the S&P 500 or the ASX 200, uh, it's probably an answer of why not both? And then also why not other market-based ETFs as well? You might look into Europe. uh, You might look into emerging markets. You could look into China. There's a lot out there. I think the important thing is, you know, like over the last 10, 15 years, if you'd you know, post JFC, if you'd done the S and P five hundred or the Nasdaq one hundred, the US based ETFs, that you would have done very well for yourself there. But before that, you know, different markets have outperformed at different times. There was actually a really interesting research piece done by Bridgewater that we included in Thought Starters a few weeks ago on different decades and who's outperformed well. Australia its best decade, I can't remember the decade it was, but we we did, came second in the world in terms of best performing markets for one decade. And other than that, we haven't been sort of top three or four. So Classic. Yeah. But, you know, sec- second isn't bad. You would have made money. You would have you made money. But look, this is a long and convoluted way of saying you've got the right idea in terms of getting into broad-based market ETFs and holding it for a long time. In terms of which ones in particular, I think spread the risk around so you're exposed to different markets. So that answer also kind of flows into the next question that we've had through from James Rennan. I'll read the first line because it's a it's a cracker. He says, very keen to put some cabbage into an ETF to let the power of compounding do its thing. So <laughs> great opening line there. But James is also tossing up between the Vanguard A300 and the Vanguard High Yield ETFs. He's in his early 20s, so he's got a very long time horizon and, and a bit of cash to put in and, and wants to know what's going to be better in the long run between these two. And so I think your your comments probably echo into this one in terms of why not both um, and also why not consider d- divesting into a number of other ETFs as well. Obviously, the Vanguard High Yield is going to give you some ETF growth in terms of cap- uh, sorry, dividend payments, and I guess they both have a bit of different exposure. So, so um, I, I actually have a different answer for this one. Yeah. If, the, if it's a high-yield Australian fund, 
and then you're also investing in the ASX 300, you're just exposed to the same market twice. Yeah. So I think in a general sense here, diversification is still important, but focusing on high yield and focusing on a broad-based market index sort of have different underlying purposes. So I guess the bigger question is, are you after cash flow? So are you do you want your investments to be spitting out money every quarter or every half year or, you know, annually? Or are you after long-term growth and you don't need that cash flow? And that's probably the biggest determining factor if it's an Australian high yield fund versus an Australian ASX 300 fund. Yeah. Well, as you said, Ren, you, you're definitely going to get it paid dividends through an uh, uh, ASX 300 fund anyway. So Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can't give specific investment advice, so I'll probably won't go any further than that. But just think about what the purpose of the investment is and um, where, where you – like why you're parking your money, what do when you need to use it. Yeah. And yeah. obviously speak to someone who is aware of your – personal financial circumstances and can give you specific advice nice all right next one is from damien who is asking about ipos and he wants to know uh, our thoughts on ipos generally and then if we've ever invested in ipos and then specifically he's also interested in one company that's going to do an ipo in a few months called sezzle s-e-double-z-l-e I've never heard of them. They're in the buy now, pay later sector, which you love. So maybe you've heard of them? No. So I haven't really done too much uh, research into Sezzle Ren, but I'll, let's address the IPO uh, section first. So he says that I want to know your thoughts on this company and also how you would invest in an IPO because he's never invested in an IPO before. I think this is probably a more interesting part of the question. And, and it's a good one. Um, as a retail investor, sometimes it is very hard to get access to an IPO. Unless you know someone or an investment banking, it's very, very difficult to get into a pre-IPO in terms of uh, off-market, I guess. Usually the way, and correct me if I, um, you've had different experience, Ren, but usually the way that you get into an IPO uh, before open is uh via your broker. So for example, Comsec will have a list of IPOs that are coming through their platform and they'll send you an email saying, you know, we've got this IPO coming up. Would you like to subscribe? Um, This is the minimum subscription amount, maybe $2,000, whatever it may be. You can subscribe and then get access to that IPO prior to anyone else that is not going through Comsec. So I guess these platforms use it, try and use it as a point of differentiation. Otherwise, as I said, it's a, it's a bit difficult. You usually have to wait until the stock goes public and then you just jump in like any other investor would. Uh, have you had a different experience with an IPO, Ren? So I've been involved in some, some that I subsequently sold and wish I hadn't. Um, I think in a general sense, though, what we've seen recently and probably what you can see throughout history if you look back is there's a lot of IPOs that come in with a lot of hype and maybe don't live up to that hype. And so what you see is a few days or even just a day in some cases of really solid trading and then it falls away very quickly. Recently, I'm thinking of Lyft as an example of that. Yeah. So I think I think probably the main thing is think about what the purpose of an IPO is. It's for the business to raise capital, but it's also to give 
investors, early investors in the business, a chance to exit their positions. So they, you know, once it's publicly traded, they can then sell and realize the gains that they've made through the investment in the business. There's some misaligned incentive problems, you know, investment banks are brought in to sell the IPO and they there's an expectation that the IPO goes well, so their incentive is to ensure it goes well. Their incentive isn't to make sure you're getting the right price or the best deal. So when you get those emails from your broker and stuff like that, you know that they've got an incentive to get that IPO fully subscribed, ideally oversubscribed, and to get some demand for those first couple of days at the very least. So that's a long way of saying... I always do like looking at IPOs, but I'm very reluctant to invest in them. And so specifically, how have you invested in an IPO? So it's actually a really easy process. Yeah, broker will send you emails, you know, Comsec, IG, whoever the broker is. If you're interested, sometimes you just reply to the email and you say, yes, I'm interested. And as long then they say, all right, have X amount of money in your account by X date and we'll take that and subscribe you. Um, sometimes you have to fill out an online form or click a link or something. It's, it, they make it very easy, but the, the way that it's always started for me is either on my broker's website or on an email from a broker. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's the key. If, if you are specifically after a company that you want to be involved in the IPO, you need to track down which broker is going to be supporting that IPO. Obviously, most will pick it up once it goes live, but if you want to get in prior, just check out the main broker's websites and there'll, there'll be a list. Yeah, There's generally a uh, institutional allocation and a retail allocation. And so there's generally shares available for investors like you and I. It, it generally can be found pretty easily, like quick Google. I don't know what an upcoming IPO is. What the question asked about Sezzle, so Google Sezzle IPO and you can pretty quickly find out how you can subscribe to it if you want to. In terms of Sezzle and the Buy Now, Pay Later, we we recently sat down with Julia Lee from Bell Direct and uh, we had a bit of a conversation about that industry and got her professional thoughts on it. So I would suggest if uh, you missed that and you're still interested in in that industry, um, jump back and, and listen to that. She had some great comments. So do you want to move on, Ren? Yeah, I think so. So this one's come in from uh, another James and he would like us to explain how liquidity works in the context of ETFs. Should ETFs with a low daily trading volume be any cause for concern? Uh, and also, what are your thoughts and feelings around some of the warnings that ETFs are yet um, untested in prolonged market downturns? And, and what are the liquidity implications in that instance? Now, I know uh, we've discussed this before with beta shares, and you have a bit of a different opinion to obviously them. And uh, I'll hand this over to you, Ren. Yeah. Okay. So briefly, uh, <laughs> you can't do both. You can't hand it over to me and have it oh, brief. I am. I am. <laughs> um, so I know we've answered a couple of questions about ETFs already, and we've said you know they're generally a good investment for long term uh, market returns. And so this probably sounds a bit contradictory, but it is probably a reflection of where at least my thinking is, and I I don't want to speak for you, Bryce, but I would assume our thinking is around ETFs, is that they they have been great long-term investments. They seem to be great long-term investments. But as the questioner points out, they're right. They haven't been tested 
in a really bad market in a really meaningful way. The growth of ETFs really kicked up a notch after the GFC. So there were ETFs around before, but as a you know proportion of the market, they were a lot smaller. To answer the, the specific around liquidity, the ETFs trading with a low daily trading volume shouldn't really be too much cause for concern. And there's a reason for that. And that is that ETF providers are market makers essentially. So when you sell a unit of an ETF, they then go into the market and then sell that unit of the ETF and return your money. They essentially guarantee you a market. So you know, if you're selling a unit of Vanguard, they'll return you your money and then it's on them to go and sell into a market. My, what you alluded to before about beta shares is, and this is my concern around it, is what happens to small ETF providers if there's a massive panic, a lot of people sell ETF units into the market, the ETF provider returns people's money as they're obligated to do and then has to sell those stocks into the market and can't because there's no liquidity for some of the underlying assets. So, you know, if we're talking about a S&P 500 ETF, this risk probably doesn't materialize because there's always going to be enough people buying and selling those shares. There's always going to be enough liquidity in the market for the ETF provider to offload those shares. But if we're talking about some of the really exotic ETFs where, where the underlying asset is very, has very low liquidity, very few people buying and selling, and then there's a panic in that market which dries up any liquidity, then is there a risk? According to uh, our ex- my exchange with beta shares at our live show, the answer is no. I I don't know. I think the answer is maybe for some of the smaller ones. You know, like Vanguard and stuff have trillions of dollars of assets under management. Like they're going to be fine. Or maybe not trillions, but hundreds of billions of dollars of assets under management. But yeah, I think it's a good question. But the, the important structural thing about ETFs is that they are a market. The ETF provider is a market maker, and they guarantee you a market. So you'll always be able to sell your unit of that ETF. But then what happens after that is an open question. And also, what price you sell the ETF at is dependent on, you know, how the index, the underlying index, is going. Yeah, it's very much an unknown in some regards at this stage. So um, watch this space if things certainly turn south. All right, Ren, good answer. So that 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 is my understanding of ETFs, as is this whole podcast. We're, we're still learning as we go. So some of the things that I just said there, people who work in the more closely in the industry might disagree. Write into us, tell us where I got it wrong. We'll do a correction on air and it would be good to have this conversation because it's a conversation that I think I personally really want to have and I think would be a lot of value to our listeners to have it as well. So if someone's, you know, sitting on the train listening to this episode yelling at me, come and yell at me on air. (laughs) Yeah, open invite. All right, Ren, let's move on. The next question is from Tasman and they ask... They ask a long question, so I'm just going to quickly cut down to the core of it, Yeah, which is essentially Tasman is hearing mixed messages. On one hand, don't try and time the market, but on the other hand, people are saying that this market's been in a bull run for over 10 years since the GFC and it's going to come to an end soon. And they're probably referring to you, Bryce, the perma bear of the podcast. (laughs) 
And yep. so the question is, if that that is right, and we're getting to the end of a bull market, should should we be taking the advice not to time the market, or should we be waiting for the bull market to end? It seems it seems there's a bit of contradictory advice going on. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Yeah, great question. Um, there's always going to be contradiction in the market, regardless of which stage we are at in the cycle. So, um, trying to remove a lot of the noise is obviously a very difficult thing to do as a beginner investor, and as we've discussed. And I guess trying to come up with your own thesis is the most important thing. Absolutely right in terms of not trying to time the market. I also, you know, I think equally. You know, you don't want to try and time the bottom of the market, but you also really don't want to try and time the top of a market because we really have no idea when it is coming. Yes, there's a consensus that we are getting towards the top end of the market, but who knows how long it's going to go on for. So there's been many instances over the last 10 years where people have thought that we've been at the top of a market, me included, and have not put in money in in fear of or, you know, in hope that they could take advantage of a, a drop that has come, that will come when we do top out. But in doing so, they have left a lot of gains uh, on the table. So I, I think from a beginner perspective, the way that I would approach this is that if you are getting conflicting messages and, and you, you, you may think that okay, it seems a bit risky to be investing in the market at the moment. My advice um, or my thoughts on it, the way I would approach it, would be certainly not to be putting all of my money in the market. I would be leaving some on the sidelines, but I would, would be putting some in the market just to get exposure, put into something that is not hugely risky, hugely volatile, and do something at a consistent interval so that... Um, you are not just putting it all in at one time and hoping the market doesn't crash or, or go down. That that's probably my my basic, uh, I guess approach approach to this because I am certainly in that position as well. I've got a large, well, some cash on the side, but still a large proportion in the stock market. And yes, there are conflicting messages, but I I wouldn't worry so much about it. I know Ren, you're constantly investing in the market at the moment so you probably have a slightly different approach to this i'm interested to hear your thoughts yeah the the stat that i love to crack out and i think hopefully goes to some way to answer the question is lehman brothers collapsed on a monday in 2008 and in the midst of the jfc if you had bought the s&p 500 just in the biggest 500 publicly traded companies in america the the friday before that Monday where Lehman Brothers collapsed, 
in the six months after that, you would have lost about 40, 47% of your money. So you would have almost lost half of the money that you invested in six months. Devastating. That's, that's the argument to not buy at the market top. But a decade on, if you had just held through that period, you would have, you would have doubled your money. So yeah. look, obviously if you'd bought at six months on at the bottom of the market, you would have more than doubled your money. You would have done much better, but you still doubled your money even just sitting still through the worst financial crisis of our lifetimes. So I, I think that the it is it does seem to be contradictory. Don't time the market, but you know we're we're getting to the end of a bull run. But at the end of the day, over the long term, what history has shown us is wherever you buy, it's better to buy now rather than waiting because markets over the long term average higher. So that that's probably the the simple answer in terms of how you practically put that into effect. I think dollar cost averaging is a really good technique and that is simply every paycheck you get or you know every set period of time just put some money in as the market gets higher you'll be able to buy less shares with that set amount of money. So if you're putting $1000 in every 3 months, you know, if when the market's really high that $1000 will buy you less shares. And then if the market falls, that $1,000 will buy you more shares. But over time, what it will mean is that your average buying price is lower than the highs and you're not trying to time the market. You're just consistently getting into the market. And, you know, from every historical backtest that's been done, it, you know, it makes sense to just when you have money to put in the market, get it in the market and leave it in the market for as long as you can. Yeah, nice. Completely agree. And this, um, yeah, we, look, we won't go too much further into that one. Um, hopefully that answers the question, which brings us to our lucky last question, Ren, and uh, we're, we're just about out of time. So let's uh, briefly answer this. It, it is a really good question. And the question is, is there any point in searching for good companies? Won't its strong performance be reflected in the share price? Shouldn't I be searching for undervalued companies instead? Now, this is uh, if I had Warren Buffett next to me, I would hand it to him. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on this? If you want a brief answer, yes, yes, and yes. So, <laughs> yes, is there any point in searching for good companies? Yes, there is. Yes, won't the strong performance of these companies be reflected in the share price? Well, yes, and should you be searching for undervalued companies instead? Well, except for the instead word, yes, again, and I guess. To flesh that answer out, and I'll take your point about briefly, is good, good companies generally trade at higher price-to-earnings ratios because there is an expectation of future growth. Uh, in, investors price them higher than bad companies where we don't expect much, and so we aren't willing to pay a premium because we don't expect the company to grow into the earnings multiple we're paying for them. So, for example, if you buy a good company and it's trading at 40 times this year's earnings, but you expect it to be able to double its profit in the next three years, then all of a sudden that 40 times earnings you're pay, you paid becomes 20 times earnings. Pete, there is, a pre, there is a premium for good companies, but if they are really good companies, if they have solid fundamentals, they have competitive advantages, there are barriers to entry in the industry – it's sometimes worth paying that premium and holding for the long term because they will continue to grow over time. 
that hypothetical company that we paid 40 times earnings for, it doubled its earnings and all of a sudden it was 20 times earnings. Maybe if you hold it for another five years, 10 years, it'll double its earnings again and then maybe again after that. And so you being an investor that held that good company for a long time and allowed it to grow, you really reap the benefit of it. That That's why there's a premium and that's why paying a premium for growing companies isn't always a bad thing. To the point about undervalued companies, the reason that value investors do well and look for undervalued companies, it's, it's a risk reward thing. And if you're buying this hypothetical company at 40 times earnings, there's not a lot of margin for error. Because if the company isn't as good as you expected it to be and your analysis showed it to be, then all of a sudden you've bought a very expensive company that doesn't grow into its earnings. Even if it just consistently churns out the same amount of profit every year, which might be a good company, if you've paid 40 times earnings for it, essentially that company will need to operate 40 years and make the same amount of profit for 40 years just to, just to, just to pay back your initial investment. So in, in that respect, the buying undervalued companies is all about risk management because it gives you a wider margin for error if your analysis was wrong, if your forecast wasn't as good, or if there are factors outside your and the company's control that come into play that hurt the company's fortune. So, I mean, the gold standard is, you know, Warren Buffett says is uh, great companies at good prices. He used to look for any company at great prices, but what, what you don't get there is when they're really undervalued, they're generally, the market doesn't expect them to grow. And the market generally is pretty good at predicting these things in a general sense. Like the market's often wrong, but generally it's pretty good. So if it's undervalued, there might be a reason it's undervalued. But yeah, you, the, the risk is lower if your analysis is wrong. So that wasn't, probably wasn't as brief as you were hoping, Bryce, but I hope it goes <laughs> some way to answering the question. No, no, that was a, a great response, Ren. Couldn't have said it better myself. So hopefully that uh, puts a bit of colour to the that question there. So that brings us to the end of Ask Us Anything for the month of May, Ren. We had some great questions, as always, dominated by ETFs. So if you haven't already, check out our three-part episode with BetaShares. It gives a, a bit of an insight into uh, what ETFs can offer you. And, and we have a chat to the CEO and, and look at some of the themes that surround ETFs that you can invest in. Yeah. So as always, great to chat stocks, Ren. If, if our listeners, if you guys are really enjoying what we're doing, I think one of the biggest ways that you can support us at the moment, other than sending us a check in the mail, <laughs> is um, please subscribe if you haven't, rate us, and also leave a comment uh, in your uh, podcast platform. It all helps go a long way to getting exposure and, and getting us up on the charts, which is important for all podcasts, uh, as you guys can imagine. So please, if you're enjoying what we do and, and would like it to continue, then uh, we would very much appreciate if you could do that. Also, follow us on Instagram, social media as well. And if you've done all that and you still want to help us a little bit more and you do subscribe to Thought Starters, our weekly email, uh, forward it to a friend, forward it to someone who you think might be interested in it, spread, spread the word. Yeah, just like those chains you used to do at school where it says, <laughs> if you don't forward this to 10 people, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't forward this to 10 people, you'll have bad investing returns. Yeah, yeah. So let's get that going, see how far we can get it around the world. <laughs> All right, Ren, we'll, uh, let's leave it there. 
next episode is the start of June, and as always, it's going to be a book of the book of the month, the book that we've been reading during May. So it'll be a book club, and that would be our uh, Made in America by Sam Walton. Yep, can't wait. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.